Why does our church exist? Do we ever really think about this? Do we exist to do things like preach and pray and evangelize and serve and love one another? Yes, but why, right? Why do we do those things? We do them because of the reason we exist. And we exist to proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in every single thing we say and do. My goal when I preach the Word of God is that the eyes of your hearts would be opened to see the worth and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for you. Not only so you would have this untouchable, indestructible assurance, but also that you would be moved to proclaim that same gospel to others who need it so badly. Revelation 19 answers the question really for all time of why it is that the Lord our God is so worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor. Why is He so worthy of our faith? We discover in Revelation 19 that our God is a God of salvation and glory and power. That's what we're told here. A God whose judgments are true and just. A God who vindicates His servants and avenges their blood. A God of small people and great people. An almighty God who reigns in sovereignty over everything that He has made. And a God who ordained from eternity past that His Son, Jesus Christ, would have a glorious interracial bride for people of every nation whom He has redeemed from sin and death and with whom Jesus will celebrate forever the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what chapter 19 tells us about God. Everything in chapter 17 and 18 was a description of the judgment that God is going to pour out on Babylon, the global system, the global network of human rebellion, unbelief, and idolatry, the weapons of the great dragon Satan to assault the church in every time and every place, characterized as the beast who is symbolic of the state's power to intimidate through violent persecution, even through martyrdom. And the great prostitute, the symbol of the culture's power to seduce through the intoxicating idolatry of prosperity and security and all this adulterous compromise. Satan stands behind all of that. Back in verse 1 of chapter 17, John heard the words, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Then in 18.2 we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In verse 8, She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then finally, in 18, verse 10, we read, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And so tonight in chapter 19, we begin with the words, After this, meaning after this portrayal of Babylon's final conclusive judgment. And so what follows in these 10 verses, the first 10 verses of 19, is the response of God's people and all of the angelic hosts to this judgment of Babylon by God. God is worthy of praise, is what this means. And that's what we have in Revelation 19. John, hearing the worship in heaven of both creation and the church as they celebrate the Lord's triumph over wicked Babylon. And so, beloved, the worship of our almighty triune God is not just the purpose of the book of Revelation. It's the reason, literally, for everything that exists. And so as Sam Storms writes, chapter 719 come together, 17 through 19 come together to say to us, 
Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Worship God. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Worship God. Don't worship any of the sensual or worldly pleasures that Babylon offers you. Worship God. John is inviting us on earth to join with heaven, even now, in the celebration and adoration of the God who not only judges Babylon, but who has also redeemed men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so when we sing these wonderful songs and hymns, we aren't just singing songs when we worship. We are celebrating and proclaiming the God of heaven and earth, and we worship Him for all that He is for us in Jesus Christ. God will judge the world. He keeps reiterating this and bring His people safely into His presence forever where now we discover it's not this mindless, floating on a cloud, ethereal existence. We will enjoy the gift of His divine love with our divine husband for all eternity. So let's pray and we'll look here in 19. Father, I thank You for this word of Your promise. Thank You, O God, for giving us this glimpse into the glory and worship and praise of our God and His Son, Father, You in heaven. And what is coming for us as well in light of Your judgment on the earth that one day will be final and decisive and conclusive, Father, in every way. And so, Lord, may we be lifted up by this passage tonight. Would You reveal to us what You breathe into this text that we might understand and believe by grace through faith in Your Word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help me speak. Help everyone listen. And listen well. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first two verses here of 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. So John is once again being permitted to eavesdrop, if you will, on what is happening in heaven. He hears a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. All those things are exclusively His. That's the point John is making here. This salvation of sinners, the glory that is due to the one who has provided it, the power to bring it all about, all this is by God for us. This multitude is most likely made up of the angels, the 24 elders from chapters 4 and 5, and the four living creatures, the martyred saints who were killed for their allegiance to Jesus, this is the heavenly choir we will one day join. This God alone can provide redemption for sins. No other God can forgive you, redeem you, make you whole. And the completely priceless, indestructible, lasting beauty and splendor that our souls, our souls long for and search for belongs only to this God. The only thing that is sufficient to captivate the human being for eternity is God. And all power belongs to Him. Only He has the omnipotence to not only create but uphold this universe and supply us with everything we need to survive in a broken world. Only God. We're just being given reasons that He is worthy of worship. Here, He's praised for all this because He has judged Babylon, the world, once and for all, for, in verse 2, 
right? His judgments are true and just, which means God's judgment of sin and sinners is not a stain on his character. It's not something he has to try to hide from or apologize for. It's the promised relief and gift of life to his believing people. Remember, this world will never be able to uh, carry out complete justice. Sometimes people get away with what they did. Right? Often people get away with what they did or how they've hurt us. And the saints are being told here, listen, one day I will take care of this. I will remedy this. And so it's so important to to understand and rest in the finished work of Christ. No sin goes unpunished. Either it was poured out on Christ or it will be poured out on the one who did it for all eternity. And so God is being praised here that his judgments are true and just. Such things are the very reason God is so worthy of worship. When the great prostitute is judged for corrupting and destroying people, The divine vengeance that God pours out on them is true and it's just. They deserve it. And God is just to carry it out. Did you know the word hallelujah is used only four times in the whole New Testament? And all four times are here in chapter 19 of Revelation. Verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. God is to be praised. Praise Him. That's the repetitive message here. That's the point of the text. God will wrap everything up, beloved. And those that harmed his people will be destroyed. And the world that fed their evil lies and deceit and covered them up so that justice didn't come, it will be destroyed with them. This is the hope of the believer. This is our promised salvation from sin and death. So, hallelujah, praise God indeed. Verses 3 and 4. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. The wording here really, or much of it is drawn from the Old Testament description of God's judgment on the kingdom of Edom. Back in Isaiah 34, 9 and 10. I I, I want to try to reiterate this every time we come across it here in Revelation because we come across it here often and it is very helpful in properly interpreting Revelation. Revelation is the capstone, if you will, of biblical revelation. And so all these shadows and descriptions, and all they're they're all coming to final realized fulfillment in Revelation. So when God was describing the judgment he would pour out on Edom, in his mind he's preparing us to hear the final judgment of all things. He's telling us very early on, his people very early on in Isaiah, how he's going to do the final things as well as the immediate things they were facing. This text is also very similar to Revelation 14.11 that also points to the never-ending nature or never-ending effect of God's judgment on Babylon. Babylon, the world, Satan, they, they will not be able to rise again. There will be no second fall. There will be no lapse back into sin and death. The, the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. They will be being punished for eternity. All that rejected God. The Roman Empire named itself, very interestingly in light of this passage, the Roman Empire named itself Roma Eterna, which means eternal Rome. And so think about how the seven churches would have heard this 
chapter in Revelation 19. There's only one empire that will last forever. Only one. The empire of Jesus Christ. The 24 elders and four living creatures affirm that to be true. In verse 4, the old world that exists right now that you and I live in, under the sway of the dragon, the beast, and the prostitute, will one day be utterly and finally destroyed, never to rise again. Verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. God wants to hear worship from all of us. This voice calling for that comes from the throne itself, calling on all God-fearing servants of God, the powerful and important, and the weak and unnoticed, if you will, to join this choir in its worship. We will have a voice there. And we will worship Him, for He is worthy. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And so this great multitude heard in verse 1 shouts forth, booms forth its praise once again. But here, their voice is even louder. It's intensifying. It's getting louder. Here it's like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I know I've spoken of this before, but if you have ever been to Niagara Falls and and, and realize as you, if you have your windows down when you're a couple miles out or a mile out, whatever, that you can hear this roar in the background, and you're not even there yet. And when you get up to it, that much crashing water is so loud and intense. And to imagine that the heavenly choir sounds something like this, but more so like that, is amazing. So God, even in the sound water makes when it pours, is prophesying to us of what the praise and worship of Him will be like forever. Redemption is woven into everything. One day, beloved, eternity itself will ring with the combined voices of the myriad of God's people from all history, from every tribe and language and people and nation. We'll understand each other. We'll know exactly what each other is saying alongside the angels and the heavenly beings as together with one incomprehensibly loud and beautiful voice as we reflect forever on all the reasons that God our Savior is worthy of all our praise. Do you realize this? This is real. This is legitimate. One day, you and I will be singing alongside Abraham and Moses and David and Paul, and we'll all have a story witnessing to the grace and glory of our God. And there will be so much of that that it will never end. It is a beautiful thought for the weary soul. Have you ever been to a football game when your team scores a touchdown and you turn to whoever you're with to talk to them, to say something to them, and you can't even hear the sound of your own voice, let alone the sound of their voice? That times infinity, beloved, is what it will be like on the other shore. And the fact that God has judged Babylon means that God is the one who reigns. The fact that the earth is so filled with evil and wickedness might imply that God doesn't reign, that He doesn't have control, but God is sovereign. So all of this chaos 
is controlled chaos. It only goes on because God's mercy goes on. Right? That's the only thing, the only reason the world is continuing so that God's plan might be accomplished. This is so crucial to the foundation of our worship as Christians. We want to have this in mind when we sing and that God has the sovereign power to bring about all He does and says. God has not lost His grip on creation. He hasn't ceased to rule over all the affairs of men. Always remember, we are always surprised at our own depravity. We're always surprised at the depravity of the world. God is not surprised at all. He isn't shocked. He doesn't clutch His pearls. He sent His Son because He knew what it would take to forgive us. So welcome to all who would come to Christ, regardless of what their sin is, regardless of what their struggle is, regardless of what their addiction is, regardless of how they identify themselves. Let them come to Christ. Let them come to Christ. Tell the story of God's salvation. This is why God is worshipped throughout all of it, because He and He alone reign. So His sovereignty and unfailing love are the reason we may keep on singing even if one day, Even if, beloved, the evil plans of Babylon come to our doorstep and into our lives and we pay the ultimate price for following Jesus, our God has not moved an inch. And it doesn't mean He's any less worthy of our worship as we are sent straight to Him. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Every love story comes from this and the fact that God has said this is what would happen let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe himself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints from Genesis to Revelation Okay, you want to get a, a grasp on the whole Bible. Here's, here's what you need to know. Ready? Tony Romano for free, solving all the questions of the ages. All right? That was a joke. You can laugh. Laugh to make me feel better, even if it wasn't funny. Just every second of human history, every second of it, every moment, ever spent by everybody, ever lived, consummates, once and for all, here in the marriage supper of the Lamb, in the eternal union and ecstasy of the bride of Jesus Christ. Everything that God created and that He created in marriage and for marriage finds its end, its purpose, its fulfillment in this wedding feast, in this marriage. That's why everything that exists has ever existed to end right here. Right here. So as you read the Bible, what's going on in Nahum? Well, God is preparing for a wedding feast. Right? Or pick any prophet, any book of the Bible that we struggle to understand. Right? What's going on in Judges? Judges is like watching Game of Thrones, which is a, a horrible show to watch. It's, you know, as far as what you let go into your mind. Right? It's just, it's not good. Judges is rough. So what, what does judges have to do with redemption? And, and beloved, all through the judges, you, you, you're, you're, the book of the judges and, and the judges that are listed there and given to us, you're learning 
Not only that man will be utterly unable to accomplish this salvation and obtain the promise God gave to Abraham. But at the same time, you're learning how it is that God will do that through his son. So what, what do you have in Samson? Right. You, you, you have a man who gives his life to destroy God's enemies for God's glory. Offers up his own life. Kills himself that God may get glory for the destruction of his enemies. Oh, beloved, who does that point us to? Where does that take us? So he's, he's pursuing a wedding. God is a wedding planner. And this is what creation is. The image of Jesus is the bridegroom. This, this is the first place we see this, not even remotely. And his people as the bride, that's been with us, that image, since the Old Testament era. But Jesus himself spoke about that more than anyone else did. Small wonder. It's why his disciples, for example, weren't to fast until the bridegroom had ascended back to the Father. Don't fast, don't weep and mourn because the bridegroom was with them in Matthew 9, 14 and 15. Jesus is the one in Matthew 22, 1 through 14 that said the kingdom of heaven could be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Well, this is that. He portrayed his second coming as the coming of a bridegroom in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And it was John the Baptist who basically said in John 3, 29, that look, I'm just the best man. This is the groom. And beloved, all fear or anxiety, listen, that you and I might come into that feast underdressed to walk down the aisle to meet Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, falls in the face of God's amazing grace. It's right here, and he's talking about works that were granted to us. It was granted to his bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Right? Grace granted the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 that we looked at a few Sundays ago. We've been made beautiful for our divine husband who has washed us and cleansed us by his word, who's made us holy and beautiful for him, dressed us in all his provision. And so all of our good works, that's not how we gain entry into this great reception, this great wedding. The fact that all we needed and did in His name was the result and the fruit of His gracious love for us is what clothes us and makes us ready to meet Jesus. Verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I, that would be John, fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. Somebody get that message out to the Pope. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To be united, or to be, sorry, invited to the feast in verse 9 means that you have been made ready for that feast by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sealing, keeping power and fruit of His Holy Spirit. Notice that verse 9 moves the portrait here of this bride from this corporate, this congregation, this mighty choir of the church to individual believers, to each one that has been invited, made ready. And these are the true words of God. 
This blessing is the greatest and highest of all that God has given or could give. Right? To be in His presence as His very own child, as His very own son's wife, seated and served for all eternity by the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that genuinely fills me with constant anxiety, which is sinful, we're told not to worry, but lingers in the back of my mind is how in the world I'm going to pay for possibly three weddings. I have three daughters. Three weddings. As a father... I want to give them the best wedding I can. I want to spare no expense if, if I can help that, if that's possible. And I'll do the best that I can with what I have at the time. But whatever I have, let's say I would have hit the big one billion mega millions the other day. I'd still be here tonight. I wouldn't. I might build a few places to travel to, but I'd still be here. It would be nothing compared to this feast. Nothing. Which, that that goes without saying, right? We know that. But I mean, you can have some pretty extravagant weddings. And if if you can afford it, or if that's what a a family wants to do, that's great. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's Of course you want that. And you want to lavish on this. You're celebrating their love. You're excited for them. And and, and, and then you have the other spectrum where I, I met with a couple yesterday doing their wedding in September. And they want it to be very simple and not much to it. They don't even have uh, a wedding party on each side. It's just them because that's what they wanted to do. I, I, think, I think it's beautiful. right? That's how they wanted to have their wedding because they love each other. They want to be together and they didn't want all the stress of so many things and so many people. And that, that's fine. Of course, it's their choice. And, but that's another way to have a, a beautiful wedding if that's what you want. But maybe all of this, this idea of lavishing, like wanting to make a wedding a great thing for the couple, especially for the bride. I I think little ladies are planning their wedding before they even care about men in general, right? The dress they want to wear, how they want their wedding to go, that usually comes out on the rehearsal. Look, I've been planning this since I was five. And you are not going to get in the way. And then the mother-in-law is mad. And it's just, it's, it's a great thing. But... Weddings are these amazing things. And maybe this is at least part of the reason why marriage portrays on earth the relationship between Christ and His church. Maybe this has been in the design the whole time. So that in our desire, as fallen human beings, to lavish those that we love and care for and want to celebrate with beauty and extravagance, maybe that would be a reminder to us all the time of what God is preparing to lavish on His Son and His bride. Just imagine the next time you see pictures of the Grand Canyon or of space or of Niagara Falls or of the the wonders of the ancient world or the beauty of creation. Just that God is planning your wedding. And everything has been headed to that moment. Thousands of years and maybe way more than that. We don't even really know this has been in our God's mind before He created a single thing. Beloved, we, we do not have the ability to grasp what this is going to be like. It's going to be amazing. These terms, this language, it's the picture. God is telling us this in words that we can at least relate to and understand 
some sense of. It's the picture of love and joy and celebration and happiness. And every groom in here probably, I I hope I'm speaking for all of us, when you saw your wife the first time when the back of the, you know, in the back of the church, the doors open, there is nothing like that feeling that that woman is, is walking to me to marry me. Like no husband on that day feels like he deserves that woman. And she's beautiful. And of course her dad's there. And so you're, you know, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. And beloved, this is all of that is a whisper, if that, of what's to come. Only this time at this wedding, and for all time, there won't be any hint of sorrow that creeps in. There won't be anybody wondering at the feast, man, I, I hope this lasts. You know, I know they have a, a, a lot of issues they'll have to face and the difficulties of the world. There won't be any anxiety. There won't be any worry. There won't be any sadness. That departure, I'll do my best to hold it together for my girls when they get married, but I, I don't know. Right? I, I just, I don't know. Forrest Gump made me cry pretty hard. I'm probably going to cry at my daughter's weddings. But this, there will be nothing there to make the bride wonder whether or not she'll be loved and kept. Nothing. She will never, we will never experience criticism from this groom. We will never be belittled or demeaned or uncared for or unprotected. We will never doubt whether or not we're loved as much as He said He did. That's what's coming for every single one of us. Our lives end in the embrace of our Divine Husband where we will be forever in a new heavens and a new earth built on the embers of this one. The end of our earthly lives and the beginning of our eternal ones are wrapped in the language of God's blessing on us in verse 9. So it isn't that hard to comprehend then why John would have fallen down at an angel's feet out of nowhere all of a sudden to worship him. The brilliance and power of just the angels is apparently extremely overwhelming to mere human beings. We've talked about this a lot. Angels can be given great authority. We've seen that in Revelation. They can make the whole earth bright with their glory. An angel can be given that by God, but also this angel has just pronounced an almost inconceivable blessing on John and on countless others. That pronouncement that this is all true, that that John, this is going to be. These are the true words of God, probably just overwhelmed him. But I also think given what the angel says back to him in verse 10, that something even more profound is here for us to consider. Look at that last sentence in verse 10 one more time. For, worship God for, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John bows down to worship this angel because the angel here is the one who gives this amazing prophetic revelation. So when the angel rejects John's worship of that, or of him, because he's done that, he's telling John, I'm not the source of this news. Don't worship me for it. 
He's merely an instrument of revelation, not the source of revelation. One God uses to deliver his word. That's what this angel is. That's what we are. That's what John is. That's what the prophets and the apostles and the church are. So worship, even for the proclamation of God's message, belongs to God and to God alone. The angel is saying that he's on the side of receiving God's revelation like all the rest of those speaking. Again, he's not the source of it. Secondly, it's one reason the angel tells him not to worship him. But secondly, to consider here is that John is proving one of the other points of revelation very clearly here. The difference between true worship and idolatry. That either God is worship or the dragon is worship. It's false worship. There's no third option. No third option. So this scenario does present us with a kind of warning by example of how easy it is to be swept away, to be deceived and seduced into worshiping secondary creatures, secondary forces like the dragon himself who is just a fallen angel. Just the most powerful of them, but still just a created being. So if John the Revelator can slip up like this, we must be on genuine guard against deception and pray for strength in our innate weakness as human beings. Beloved, prophecy comes ultimately for the worship of God, who is the source and substance of all truth, in the person and work of Jesus. Notice where the text immediately goes here. Worship God for, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For that reason, worship God. Notice that there's an unbreakable bond between the fact that only God is worthy of worship and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All true prophecy from God, then, consists in the testimony to or the witness about Jesus himself. Beloved, this is a massive verse for understanding the whole Bible. All true prophecy has Jesus as its source, its content, and its focus. Even when the prophecies don't mention Him specifically and directly, they're all from Him. He's the point of it, the reason for it. He'll be the ultimate realized fulfillment of it. The reason we should only worship God is because the testimony of all prophecy is about God's Son, Jesus. It's not ultimately about angels. Prophecy is not ultimately about human beings. It's not ultimately about Israel. That's not the way we interpret the Bible. We interpret it with Jesus as the testimony of prophecy. It's all about the God-man, Jesus Christ. So, verse 10 means that Jesus is not only the subject... He is the source of all Scripture. All Scripture. This book that we're reading on Sunday nights is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is doing. Never forget that. The purpose of it is not to give you and I a timeline for the end times. The purpose of it is to know who Christ is for us now and will be for us in the future when all things end. That's what's being revealed. Notice, it's not the revelation of the future. It's the revelation of Jesus in Him. In Him. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is being revealed to us 
in Revelation in his ascended reigning character and form. That's why the book starts out the way it does, with a vision of Jesus in glory at the right hand of the Father. That's so important. John comes in late in the first century A.D. to remind the church as pressure begins to mount, listen, I, God wants you to know what is actually going on and where Jesus is and what he's like right now. Because the last time you saw him, he had scars in his hands and ascended in a cloud to the Father. What his victory at the cross and the resurrection have done is start the clock for the end of all things, which will have their end, beloved, at the beginning of an eternally planned marriage supper for Jesus and his bride. And beloved saints of Moundsville Baptist Church, may each and every single one of you be there. Every single one of you. Beloved, this wedding day gets closer every day. I hear couples say to me all the time and planning for weddings, we, we can't believe how fast time has gone since we got engaged. And Beloved, don't, don't forget this, that the bridegroom is coming to take his bride. Jesus is coming to remove all our enemies forever, to take us to himself in divine consummation. Have you made yourself ready? And what I'm asking when I ask that is, have you received his salvation? Your clothes for this wedding, where did you get them? How have you dressed yourself? Have you gotten rid of all the things that you think would be nice to wear to meet Jesus? I've always thought that's, that's weird. You know, we, we kind of use that as a, a way to... Um, Justifies too strong of a word, but to explain why we would dress up. I dress up to meet the president, so why wouldn't I dress up to go to church? Beloved, God is not impressed with dress clothes. All right? It, it, that's a worldly idea. Okay? What God wants you wearing, literally, is what He has given you in His Son. So let those, let those things go. Don't, don't try to please God after He has saved you with your own standards of conduct that you think He deserves or would like. Just let Jesus tell you who to be and how to behave. Right, let the Spirit guide you. Have you given away everything you think Jesus would like to be clothed instead with fine linen, bright and pure that the bridegroom Himself has prepared for you? None of us have to get pretty enough or handsome enough for this wedding. We have to stop trying to get clean and simply receive the washing and preparing of Jesus for us. Leave it all in His hands where all history is anyway. God will judge the world and bring His people safely into His presence forever where we will enjoy the gifts of His divine love with our divine Husband for all eternity. Are you ready for this day? And if you are not, would you come and pray with me? And it will be settled and finished for the sake of Christ. <laughs>